Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover the ACOG committee opinion regarding delayed umbilical cord clamping after birth. Before the mid-1950s, the term early clamping was defined as umbilical cord clamping within one minute of birth, and late clamping was defined as an umbilical cord clamping more than five minutes after birth. But in a small series of studies of blood volume changes after birth, it was actually reported that about 80 to 100 mLs of blood actually transferred from the placenta to the newborn within the first three minutes after birth, and up to 90% of that blood actually transferred within the first few breaths in healthy term infants. Now, because of the early observations and the lack of specific recommendations regarding the optimal timing and the interval between birth and umbilical cord clamping, it became common practice to clamp the umbilical cord shortly after birth, usually within about 15 to 20 seconds. However, more recent randomized controlled trials of term and preterm infants, as well as physiological studies of blood volume, oxygenation, and arterial pressure have evaluated the effects of immediate versus delayed umbilical cord clamping. Now, the college calls delayed umbilical cord clamping anything that occurs later than 30 to 60 seconds after birth. Delayed umbilical cord clamping appears to be beneficial for both term and preterm infants. In term infants, delayed umbilical cord clamping increases hemoglobin levels at birth and improves iron stores in the first several months of life. This has a favorable effect on developmental outcomes. Now, in preterm infants, rates of intraventricular hemorrhage and necrotizing enterocolitis are lower and fewer newborns require transfusion when delayed umbilical cord clamping is employed. This growing body of evidence has led a number of professional organizations, including ACOG, to recommend delayed umbilical cord clamping in term and preterm infants. For example, the World Health Organization recommends that the umbilical cord not be clamped earlier than one minute after birth in term or preterm infants who do not require positive pressure ventilation. Recent neonatal resuscitation program guidelines, called the NRP, also from the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommend delayed umbilical cord clamping for at least 30 to 60 seconds for most vigorous term and preterm infants. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists also recommends deferring umbilical cord clamping for healthy term and preterm infants for at least two minutes after birth. 
Of course, there's always two sides to the issue. The universal implementation of delayed umbilical cord clamping has raised some concerns. Delay in umbilical cord clamping may delay timely resuscitation efforts if needed, especially in preterm infants. However, because the placenta continues to perform gas exchange after delivery, sick and preterm infants are likely to benefit most from additional blood volume derived from continued placental transfusion. Another concern is that a delay in umbilical cord clamping could increase the potential for excessive placental transfusion. To date, the literature does not show evidence of an increased risk of polycythemia or jaundice. However, in some studies, there is a slightly higher risk of jaundice that meets criteria for phototherapy in term infants. So given the benefits to most newborns and concordant with other professional organizations, once again, the American College of OBGYN does recommend a delay in umbilical cord clamping for at least 30 to 60 seconds after birth in vigorous term and premature infants. Okay, well, let's take a look at some neonatal outcomes with delayed cord clamping. A recent study of umbilical cord blood flow patterns assessed by Doppler ultrasound during delayed umbilical cord clamping showed a marked increase in placental transfusion during the initial breaths of the newborn, which is thought to be due to the negative intrathoracic pressure generated by lung inflation. This additional blood supplies physiological quantities of iron amounting to 40 to 50 milligrams per kilo of body weight. This extra iron has been shown to reduce and prevent iron deficiency anemia during the first year of life. Now here's a clinical pearl. Iron deficiency anemia during infancy and childhood has been linked to impaired cognitive, motor, and behavioral development that may be irreversible. Iron deficiency in childhood is particularly prevalent in low-income countries, but also is common in high-income countries where rates can range from 5% to 25%. A longer duration of placental transfusion after birth can also facilitate transfer of immunoglobulins and stem cells. These are essential for tissue and organ repair. The transfer of these immunoglobulins and stem cells may be particularly beneficial after cellular injury inflammation, and organ dysfunction, all of which are common in preterm births. Delayed umbilical cord clamping is a straightforward process that allows placental transfusion of warm, oxygenated blood to flow passively into the newborn. The position of the newborn during delayed umbilical cord clamping generally has been at or below the level of the placenta based on the assumption that gravity facilitates the placental transfusion. However, a recent trial of healthy term infants born vaginally found that those newborns placed on the maternal abdomen or chest did not have a lower volume of transfusion compared with infants held at the level of the introitus. So this suggests that immediate skin-to-skin care is appropriate while awaiting umbilical cord clamping. In the case of cesarean delivery, the newborn can be placed on the maternal abdomen or legs or held by the surgeon or assistant as close to the level of the placenta until the umbilical cord is clamped. During delayed umbilical cord clamping, early care of the newborn should be initiated, including drying and stimulating for the first breath or cry, and maintaining normal temperature with skin-to-skin contact and covering the infant with dry linen. Secretions should be cleared away only if they are copious or appear to be obstructing the airway. If meconium is present and the baby is vigorous at birth, plans for delayed umbilical cord clamping can continue. Again, that's a 
clinical pearl from the college. If meconium is present, but the baby is vigorous at birth, plans for delayed umbilical cord clamping can still continue. The APGAR timer may be useful to monitor the elapsed time and facilitate an interval of at least 30 to 60 seconds between birth and the cord clamp. Delayed umbilical cord clamping should not interfere with the active management of the third stage of labor, including the use of uterotonic agents after delivery of the newborn to minimize maternal bleeding. Okay, here's a valid clinical concern. How does the delay in umbilical cord clamping affect umbilical cord pH determination? Well, data are somewhat conflicting regarding the effect of delayed umbilical cord clamping on umbilical cord pH measurements. Two studies suggest a small but statistically significant decrease in umbilical arterial pH of about 0.03. However, a larger study of 116 infants found no difference in umbilical cord pH levels and found an increase in umbilical artery PO2. These studies included infants who did not require resuscitation at birth. Now, whether the effect of delayed umbilical cord clamping on cord pH in non-vigorous infants would be similar is an important question, but it still requires further study. Okay, when we come back, let's cover umbilical cord milking and multiple gestations. Umbilical cord milking, or stripping, has been considered as a method of achieving increased placental transfusion in a quicker time frame of about 10 to 15 seconds. However, umbilical cord milking has not been studied as rigorously as just delayed umbilical cord clamping traditionally. According to the college, this is an area of active research, and several ongoing studies are evaluating the possible benefits and risks of umbilical cord milking compared with regular delayed umbilical cord clamping especially in extremely preterm infants. Currently, according to the college, there is insufficient evidence to either support or refute umbilical cord milking in term or preterm infants. Regarding multiple gestations, many of the clinical trials that evaluated delayed umbilical cord clamping did not include multiple gestations. Consequently, there's just little information with regard to the safety or the efficacy in this group. Now, because multiple gestations increase the risk of preterm birth with inherent risks to the newborn, these neonates could derive particular benefit from delayed umbilical cord clamping. But there are some theoretical risks, like unfavorable hemodynamic changes during delayed umbilical cord clamping, especially in monochorionic multiple gestations. So at this point, according to the college, there's not yet sufficient evidence to recommend for or against delayed umbilical cord clamping in multiple gestations. All right, this wraps up our renewed committee opinion from the college dealing with delayed umbilical cord clamping after birth. This podcast takes the material from committee opinion number 684. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.